You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. The first John chapter 4 is where we'll be, so find it and stand if you would. And we'll read uh, five verses here in the middle of the chapter. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. This morning, I'd like to preach to you on these verses, uh, how love is better than tolerance. Love is better than tolerance. And I think I'll hopefully be able to explain that as we go through here. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Father, we're asking that you would speak to us through your word. And that we'd use this message and these truths today uh, to help us to see things from your perspective. And Lord, help, help me to convey them in the right spirit, in the right way. And help us to think correctly, um, both about your word, but also how our culture starts to shape our thinking and then, Lord, I pray that you would help your truth to, to adapt or to take our minds and, and change our minds to think biblically instead of culturally about some of these things. Lord, we're asking for your help. Bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've gone through the book of 1 John, one thing I've noticed is how often he repeats the important themes uh, some, sometimes you read a, a, a book in the New Testament and certain writers like, like Paul will kind of deal with one subject throughout. And I, you follow his train of thought. It seems like 1 John, John in some ways is writing and he'll, he'll talk about this for a little while, then he'll talk about this, and then he'll go here and then he'll come back to this one and go here and go. It kind of reminds me of, of, of parenting in some ways. Because in parenting, you find yourself repeating the most important themes. You find yourself going back to the important topics. I, I mean, I can't tell you how much I've repeated certain things to my children over the course of their lives. The important things like um, make your bed when you get out of it or clean your room every day or do your chores or practice the piano or speak kindly to your siblings. And that one gets repeated a lot. Speak kindly to your siblings. Speak kindly to your siblings. I find myself repeating a lot of the same messages. And, and maybe my children are just harder headed than most children, but I think that's probably a norm, normal parenting um, ritual. As, as many uh, lessons as there are, you know, and there are countless lessons as you raise your children. But as many lessons as there are, 
uh, you find yourself reminding them multiple times about those lessons. So it's almost always a reminder. And the one that stands out to me, and I, my, if my children would probably tell you this, is they all go through a phase. You know, we try to teach them when they're young to say yes or yes, sir, or yes or yes, ma'am. And when my children say yeah to me, it just grates on me. So, I mean, I can't tell you, they all go through a phase, but I can't tell you how many dozens of times in a day in a certain phase that I would find myself, I would find myself saying, yes, sir. So I would say something to my kid, one of my children, and they would say, yeah, and I'd say, yes, sir. Then they would say, yes, sir. And I, so I find myself saying, yes, sir, a lot. Or with their mom, if they say, yeah, to their mom, then I would say, yes, ma'am, and try to get them to say, yes, ma'am. It's a small thing, but it's just one of those reminders. There are countless lessons that we repeat all the time. That's what you do when you're a parent. You know, it reminds me in a little way of what John is about. Because John talks about love a lot. It's almost like John knows that it's a, it's a lesson that we need to hear. It's a lesson that we need repeated a lot. I, heard a, I read a historian named Jerome and he wrote this, the blessed John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church, and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but, little children love one another. So get this in your mind. He's an older man. He could hardly move around. He, they, they could barely carry him to church. But every time that he got some, every time that he was somewhere, they said he would say, little children love one another. Jerome says this, the disciples and brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied with a line worthy of John, because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept... It is sufficient because it is the Lord's commandment. And if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. You know what he's saying? John is saying, if all you had, all you could do is love like God, that's all you need. We ought to love. Re the repetition was helpful. The words of John may, though, have gotten a little old to those who heard him speak. And even for me, as I preach through this book, I'm thinking, should I deal with this again? Do I need to talk about love again? We've talked about it a couple times. He spends five verses in chapter two talking about it. He spent eight verses in chapter three talking about it. We've already, pre I've preached about it. But not only does John talk about love here again in, first, in chapter four, he actually spends more time on it here in chapter four than he did in, the, in the, any of the other previous times. It encompasses most of chapter four and even into chapter five. So my question is, why would John keep coming back to this? I mean, we know he thinks it's important, but why? Well, because it's the defining Christian characteristic. This is what sets us apart. John's message is clear. Love is not optional for the child of God. It is the single most important mark of the believer. This one trait, folks, this one trait is the Christian standard. This is where it all begins, love. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, he said, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and have not charity, which that word charity is the same word as love, that Greek root, agape. He says, if I, have, if I can speak to where it sounds beautiful and everyone's impressed with how it sounds, but if I don't have charity, I become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. 
It's just noise. He said, and though I have the gift of prophecy and and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains. You realize what John's saying? He said, if I could understand all mysteries and if if I could have faith to move a mountain, he said, if I don't have charity, then none of that matters. He says in verse three, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, Though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, if I have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Are you getting the idea that, that love, charity, is the defining Christian characteristic? You understand that today? It's a little quiet in here today. Help me out. You know, we can all bear the marks of, of, of a Christian. We can even do things that look a little, little, little bit like love. He, Paul said, if I, I could bestow all my gifts to feed the poor... But that doesn't mean I have charity. If we don't display or give evidence of love, there are some serious indictments mentioned. Examination of ourselves begins with this one trait. It's the one trait that defines us the most. It's important. We're gonna, second reason, though, that John keeps coming back to the topic of love is as important as it is, it's also not easy. You ever found yourself in a position where loving somebody else was not easy? Well, maybe you're not like me, but I have. I found myself in positions where you're trying to love somebody and they just aren't making it easy. You know, the things that we need the most help with are what need to be repeated the most. It's our third message of love since starting 1 John. And honestly, it's probably not going to be our last because it's important and because it's hard. And even though, even though it's true that genuinely knowing God results in love, that doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's just going to come naturally. If we know God, the fruit of love will show up in our lives. It is inevitable. It will. But listen to this. But just because love is the inevitable result of being born of God, it is not an automatic result of being born of God. Just because it's inevitable, if you're part of the family, it will be inevitable that you exhibit love. But it is not automatic. Meaning God doesn't take over the controller. He says, oh, you haven't, been, you haven't been loving very well. Give me the controller of your life and then I'll come in and I will make sure that you love like you're supposed to. No, it is not, it is, it is inevitable. If you're a child of God, there will be evidence of love. But it's never automatic. God never just takes over and runs our lives for us. He doesn't ever just take the controller and do it for us. As a matter of fact, as important as it is, we have to make a choice to allow God's love to flow through us so that we can show love. That's why John keeps talking about it. It's not easy. It's not automatic, but it's a matter of obedience. And you, and you say, well, listen, it's just not my personality. It's just not my personality to be very lovey-dovey. It's just not, you know... I'm not very mushy. I'm not very sentimental. No, I'm not talking about how you feel. I'm not talking about a personality-based trait. I'm talking about evidence that you're part of the family. Family traits is what we're talking about. If you're a child of God, it is inevitable that love will show up, but it's not automatic. It's a matter of obedience. You have to make a choice. And that's clear if you consider the bookend commands of this passage. Look again in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. Do you think he would have to say that if it wasn't work? No. It would just be happening. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. He bookends this text, this passage, this thought group with the command. Love one another. Love one another. If we don't love, 
You say, well, I just know I'm not very good at love. Hey, it's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of us choosing not to love because God gives us the ability if we're part of the family. That much is clear. But how is this text, though, different from the other two passages? That's the question I was asking myself. Because honestly, if, I, if I'm going to preach the same topic, I want to give you what Paul is saying, uh, or what John is saying. I don't want to give you something um, that just sounds like the last message I preached on love. And you may say, well, I don't, I mean, you may not believe that. Well, try, I want to give you something fresh. So I'm asking myself, okay, what does John say here about love that's different than the other times? Well, the, the first time John addressed love was in chapter 2, and the key verse over there in verse 11, he said, But he that hateth his brothers in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. What he was saying over there is if we hate our brother, instead of exhibiting love, we walk in darkness. We're spiritually blind. What he was saying was how we treat others indicates the health of our relationship with God. In other words, you can't be right with God if you don't love the way you should. This week I, I went hiking um, and I went, I'd spent a week with some pastors and, and we had some sessions and some good conversation and, and then we would go hiking in the afternoons and, and there were some guys that were very prepared for hiking and then there were some of us that weren't. One of the days, you know, we're in Wyoming and, and we're in the, in the mountains and, and one of the days it was a nine mile hike and I did fine, I was okay, but there are certain parts of the, of, of the journey that I'm talking with somebody else and they're just like, blah, 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 and I'm, uh, uh. and I was glad they were passionate about the subject on which they were speaking because I didn't have to say anything. I mean, any one word questions I could pop in there to stay engaged, oh, how, or why, you know, and they would keep talking, it was great. But you know, the evidence of their preparation was on the mountain. You know, when it came time to it, and I and I had been jogging a little bit, trying to get ready for it, and, but, but it became apparent on the mountain I wasn't as ready as I needed to be. You know, that's kind of the case when it comes to love, is that our love indicates the health of our relationship. That hike indicated my preparation for hiking. If, you, if you're a child of God, um, then the amount of love that you have directly points to where your relationship with God is. If you hate your brother, you're walking in darkness. Your eyes are blinded, is what John says over in that chapter. The the love toward brothers and sisters in Christ is an indication of how healthy your relationship is with God. And that second message, you know, a few weeks ago, so that was the first time John talked about love. The second time was in chapter 3. We talked about the love scale, and he talked about how uh, there's murder over on this side, and next to that there's anger or hatred, and then there's jealousy, and then there's indifference, and then there's love. So you've got murder and anger and hatred and jealousy and indifference and love. And a lot of times we think, well, I'm not all the way over here at love, but at least I'm not a murderer. At least I'm not, you know, angry or hating people. At least I'm not jealousy. Well, no, any of those that aren't love mean we're not where we're supposed to be. That was kind of the indication in chapter 3, the last message we talked about. The only marker on the scale that, that puts you where you're supposed to be with God is love. Yet sometimes we think, well, you know, I'm not a murderer, but we're indifferent. 
being indifferent is just as far away from love as jealousy is. And so that was the point. So, so I went through and kind of reviewed those passages and I thought, well, how's this one different? What's the point here in chapter 4, verse 7 through 11? Does John, John deal with the same things? Well, the topic is the same, the, but the more I meditated on this, the more a truth kept coming to my mind that I think will be a help to us if we'll just kind of stay engaged here this morning. John gives some detail that gets more specific. And along the way, John brings in some extremely lofty thoughts. And I love it when he brings in some thoughts that are kind of beyond me and and thoughts that I hadn't seen before. But he does it by using one very important example of love. And he starts with this fact as a reason to obey this command. He starts with this fact. He says, the source of love is God. Look at verse 7 and 8 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Verse 8, it says, he that, knoweth, or he that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. The source of love is God. Okay, and you say, well, that's pretty obvious. Well, let me build this here. Without God, there would be no love. Let me say that again. Without God, there would be no love. That's a pretty bold claim, especially in today's culture. No, because everyone talks about love being everywhere. You hear the word love thrown around all the time. And so John makes the claim that if it's not of God, it's not love. If it doesn't come from God, it's not real love. He says God is love, love is of God, and the implication there, without stating it, is anything that claims to be love that doesn't come from God is not love. So our culture says, oh, but love is everywhere. You hear the word thrown around. I mean, I hear this word or hear this phrase a lot. I love something. I love food. Or I love pizza. I'm going to kind of give a throwback to Brother Spencer, the food pastor. (laughs) I love pizza. I've heard that a lot. Amen. It's the only amen I get all morning. I love pizza. Amen. Amen. I love, I mean, you hear people say that kind of stuff. I love pizza. I love burgers. I love french fries. And I'm making you hungry now, and that's not fair. You hear people say stuff like, I love my, my kids, my girls, especially Lacey. I love puppies. I love kittens. You hear people say, I, um, I was in the mountains this week. I love the mountains. They're beautiful. I love them. But we need to remember what kind of love is being talked about. See, John is talking about agape love. And agape love is different than loving puppies or loving pizza or loving the mountains. And from my notes just a few weeks ago, here's what I said about agape love. Agape love is God-given, which makes it the highest form of love. Agape love is sacrificial, giving love that never wavers. Agape is a verb. It is an action word. This love keeps loving even when the object is unresponsive. Even if there's no feedback, even if the object of love is unkind, even if the object of love is unlovable or unworthy, agape love is supernatural, unconditional love that is given to us by God himself, God alone. It wasn't created, it exists eternally because it is a characteristic of God himself. God is love. This kind of supernatural love could only have come from God. You know, that's a little different than I love puppies. 
Our culture looks at love as a few different things. They, they look at love as some mushy, syrupy, sentimental feeling you have towards something or someone. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's not love. That's not God's love. Uh, they'll say our culture says that love is an emotion that you feel around certain people. They say love is a physical act between two people. You know that phrase, making love now? They've taken a word that, that is, should be referencing God and something that comes from God, and they, they turn it into something that uh, is just a physical act. They, they take love and they turn it into something that is love is whatever and whomever you choose. That's our culture now. In our culture, the word love means everything and it means nothing all at the same time. The definition is so skewed in, in our minds that, that we don't even know all that it means. It's been redefined to reflect individual preferences. But whatever the world's definition of love is, it is a far cry from the agape love that comes from God. Someone defined love this way, and I love this. It says, biblical love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. And I think that's a great definition. But I, I, I say that because I want you this morning to see the contrast between the love of God and all the love that's out there. Do you see the contrast? There's a worldly, self-focused, self-defined love that's all about me, and yet there's a biblical love that's, that's all about somebody else. It seems very clear. The world's definition of love is about what the individual feels is best for them or what the individual feels expresses myself to the world. That's love. It's how I feel toward whatever or whoever I choose. But biblical love, I want you to note the difference. Biblical love is not about my feelings. It's not about my definition of love. Biblical love supersedes my take on love and it becomes about the good of someone else. It's about the good of someone being loved. See, true, biblical, selfless, sacrificial, agape love, that's part of God's nature. False, selfish, undefinable love of the world does not reflect God's love. You see, there's something here in this passage that I want to focus on today that really gives us a glimpse into the nature of biblical love. We know that God loves mankind with agape love. Let me just read verses 9 and 10. Look at it. It says, in this was, this is agape love. In this was manifested the love, agape, of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, agape, not that we loved God, agape, but that he, agape, loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is, these are some of the greatest verses in the Bible. God loved us. I just want you to listen. God loved us so much that he sent his son to die on a cross for our sins. Jesus Christ died in your place. Your sin and my, my sin should have placed me on that cross. But instead, God sent Jesus Christ to take upon himself the penalty of our sins and die there in my place. Propitiation means to satisfy God's judgment and wrath toward our sins. See, God is a holy God who can't be in the presence of sin due to his pure nature. He's also a just God, which means he must deal with sin. 
He was full of wrath, the Bible says, full of wrath toward our sin due to to his holiness. God's love didn't then just ignore our sin. Well, he didn't say, well, I love them, so I'm going to ignore their sin. No, he couldn't just ignore our sin because his holiness and justice would have been compromised had he done that. Instead, here's agape love. Agape love didn't look at our sin and say, well, I'll ignore it because I love him. No, agape sin said, agape love said, their sin must be dealt with and I will do something about it. He was moved to send his own son who bore the penalty of our sins in his body on that tree. Love prompted God to sacrifice his own son to die for sinners. Jesus Christ was the object of his father's wrath because he bore our sins in his body on that tree. That is love. God was not looking at love as a way to express himself. He wasn't looking at love as a way to make him happier. No, he looked at love by choosing love uh, that drove him to send his own son to die on a cross. He looked beyond the costs. He looked beyond the boundaries and reached everyone. He died for everyone. And he did it all for the benefit of sinners. That sounds completely different than the definition of love in our culture, doesn't it? As I was thinking about biblical love compared to the world's definition of love, one word kept coming to my mind. And that word is tolerance. Tolerance, it seems to be the word of the hour. And I hope you'll hear me out because I I don't want to turn anyone off this morning from the very beginning. I hope you'll hear me out because to talk about tolerance, it seems like in any negative way today is looked down or frowned upon. But I'm trying to get you to see this morning that there's something even better than tolerance. There's something that even surpasses this concept of tolerance today. See, tolerance says we accept people for who they are. Tolerance is, you know, you be you, we'll just embrace your choices. It's suddenly, tolerance has become the highest form of social virtue. And, and the worst thing now is to be intolerant. But tolerance has a fault that needs to be addressed today. See, tolerance implies that you put up with something. That you just let it go. It means you just accept something rather than address it. Tolerance is, at its core, I'm calling it today, and I'm proud of this, I made it up, it's called, I'm calling it an ostrich virtue. See, tolerance, as an ostrich virtue, uh, I mean, they say, and I don't know if it's really true, but they say, what do they say about an ostrich? When danger comes, it sticks its head in the stand. I don't know if that's true. I like to think it is because it's a funny visual. It's like my kids when they would play hide and seek and they would lay on the bed under a cover that only covers their head thinking I can't see them. Like an ostrich, if he sticks his head in the sand, he thinks he can't be seen. He thinks he's not in harm's way. Well, I'm going to call tolerance an ostrich virtue, which means that rather than deal with something that's coming along that could harm you, you stick your head in the sand and pretend like it's not there. See, the world claims that tolerance is the most important thing, but by by definition, its very definition, it means that that you don't deal with something. You ignore it. You just allow whatever happens to happen. And while love, 
And think about the, what we talked about about love, that God looked at us in our need, and rather than turning his, uh, his head and ignoring it, no, he took, he took his son, and he, he sent his son to die in our place. He dealt with, us, with our sin so that something better could happen. That's God's love. Well, now we're talking about tolerance, which says, yeah, if there is something, we're just going to ignore it. And I fail to see the superiority of tolerance over love. See, tolerance accepts people where they are without any... And I, I, listen, I believe that we should accept people where they are. We don't, have any, we don't have any sin detectors at the door. We don't make you walk through the door and, and scan you. I was at the airport yesterday doing this. And there's, you know, it's like, we don't make you do that when you come in the door. We, we welcome people to come to Eastside Baptist Church. We, we're, glad, we glad, we're glad you're here. We're thankful that you would spend your morning with us. It's a blessing. And, and tolerance says, oh, you accept people where they are. And, and I'm not saying that we don't accept people where they are. But there's a difference. Because tolerance accepts people where they are without any concern for change. But I submit to you that it's an inferior virtue. Because it ignores seeking someone's best. By simply accepting what they are. You tell me if you'd prefer tolerance or love in these examples. This has happened to me. You're eating out with people. And your wife has a large chunk of food in her teeth. I love my wife. You know what love says? I'm going to let her know. So I would tell her. Because I don't want her to be embarrassed. I don't want her to go through a whole conversation with... And we've all been there. <laughs> Love says, I'm going to tell my wife because I, want, I don't want her to be embarrassed. You know what tolerance would say in that, issue, in that situation? Well, I embrace my wife for who she is. I'm just going to let it go. I think I've done that to her a couple times. <laughs> Your child, you want love or tolerance? Your child runs into the street for a ball and a car is coming. Love says, son, stop. There's a car. Tolerance says, I know you're too young to look both ways. I accept that part about you. Silly, I know. A doctor sees something in a scan says, love says, we need to explore this. We need to fix it. Tolerance says, here's a hug. I accept you for who you are. Your brother in Christ is about to make an unbiblical decision that could affect his spiritual life. Love says, we need to talk. I think you could make a better choice. Tolerance says, who am I to judge? I love my brother for who he is. I respect his decisions. Do you see the point today? The idea of tolerance makes little sense in those situations. If my son was in danger, tolerance doesn't do the job. Love does. If my wife is in a situation that is embarrassing, tolerance is not good enough, but love would be. Tolerance accepts someone's present condition without pursuing change, but love sees the present condition and can't help but act to change it. See, so consider what this looks like from our passage. 
Why did God send his son into the world? Well, in verse 9 it says, and this, was, and this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, why did he send his son into the Lord? Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. The, the two reasons I see here that God sent his son is that we could live and that he could die in our place and pay our penalty. And you say, okay, that's straightforward, but what's the point? I want you to think even deeply, more deeply about it. I want you to take a step back. God sent Jesus so that we could live through him and he could be a payment for our sins. You say, okay, I get it. I see that. That's fine. What do you mean? I think we can all get on the same page by asking a simple question, why? We know what God did and we know that he did it for those reasons, but why did God send Jesus to allow us to live. Why would he do that? It implies, are you ready? It implies that we were dead. If God sent Jesus so that we could live in him, it implies that we were dead. If God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins or the payment for our sins, it implies that we couldn't pay for our own sins, right? You say, okay, this still isn't as deep as you think. Hey, let me have my moment here. Do you see that? God looked at us and said, they're dead in their sins. They need someone to pay for their sins because they can't. I don't want them to stay dead sinners, to remain in their sin. I want their sins to be paid for. I want them to live. I want them to have a relationship with me so here's my son. See, God saw us in our need and said, I can help them by sending my son. And folks, today, that's love. A willingness to do what it takes for the good of someone else. But wait, what would tolerance look like? What would tolerance look like in that situation? Well, tolerance would have said, that's who they are. They're sinners. I can't change it. I'm not going to judge. You do you, sinners. Just do your thing. Hey, if that's you, go for it. You know, choose your sexuality. Yeah, I mean, if that's you, go for it. Live life without God. Hey, that's your choice. Be promiscuous. I mean, I can't judge. Are you seeing the difference here? See, drink alcohol. Gossip. Live in sin. Children, disobey your parents. I mean, hey, you choose. You determine right or wrong. I embrace your choices. And that's tolerance. Tolerance means God would have seen us in our sinful condition, folks, and left us there. Because he would have just embraced us for who we are. I hope that you see the difference this morning. Tolerance is promoted as the higher virtue. But really, biblical love is more virtuous, more selfless, less willing to simply allow someone to stay in a position that could hurt them or hinder them or live a life that's not the best life. Tolerance says, I accept you for who you are. And, and love says, I accept you for who you are. But I'm not willing to let you stay where you are. I hope you see the difference today. It's not that over here in the religious world, we don't accept people for who they are. I mean, we do. 
We know that people are in different places. We are pretty tolerant. The problem is that if we allow people to stay where they are, then we are not, by, based on God's pattern of love, then we are not loving as we ought to. Because tolerance and love both accept people where they are, but only love says, but I'm not willing to let you stay there. And in God's case, he sent his own son. He sent his own son to fix our problem. And if he'd have been tolerant, I would still be a sinner on my way to hell. But he said, no, love is a higher virtue. I accept them for who they are, just like those that are tolerant, but I refuse to let them stay there. He saw us in our sin, and he said, I don't want them to stay dead. I love them so much, I'll send my own son to die in their place. And I'll fix their problem. We have the option to spend eternity in heaven with God because of love. You tell me which one sits at the top of the virtue scale. Tolerance overlooks sin and leaves it in its place no matter how eternal the consequences. But love refuses to let sin remain. Instead, it does what it can to provide its solution. Both accept the sinner. But one refuses to let them stay in that condition. So what does this look like in our lives? Well, if God is the source of love, that's where it begins. Then the next thought is that his children are to display his fa- the father's traits. I mean, John makes it clear that children look like the father. They exhibit family traits. In verse 8, he said, Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. The evidence of your family genetics is revealed in how closely you resemble the Father. If God is love and love has its source in Him, a conclusion can be made about whether or not you're part of the family or know the Father even based on how you love. Verse 8, if you don't love, the assumption is you don't know God. That's how fundamentally important this trait is to a member of the family. If we're His children, we will reveal it through love. If we don't, it's time for an examination. So God is the source of love. We ought to resemble the Father. Therefore, I am to love others in the same way that God loves me. You understand that? If God is the source of love and I am a member of his family, I would exhibit his traits, then I am to love others the way that God loves me. What way is that? Oh, touchy-feely, syrupy, emotional, shallow love? Like someone loves their cat? No. Tolerating sin because, you know, we make allowance for people's choices and no, that's not what he's talking about. Sacrificial? Yeah. Selfless? Yes. Accepting an individual? Um, Loving an individual but not their sin? Yep. That sounds a lot more like God's love. And here's the balance It's not just about confronting sin head on. See, a lot of people will take a message like this and they'll say, bless God, those Baptists, they're just intolerant people. But I don't want you to miss in all of this, it's not about we're not tolerant or we don't, you know, accept people where they are. No, I want you to miss the balance, don't miss the balance in all this. 
God doesn't tolerate sin, but he sent his own son to die so that that sin could be taken care of. And if we're to love like God, we have to be careful as conservative people, conservative Baptists, that we don't say, well, bless God their sin. No. God went to great lengths to rescue them from it. So that means that my mentality and my spirit in all of this is not one of intolerance. It's one of acceptance because I want to see them changed. One of love that says I don't want them to stay there. One of gentleness. It's a spirit of patience. It's a spirit of letting people come along at their own pace and not writing them off simply because they're not where I think they should be. Is that not, that's not how God dealt with me. God didn't say one sin, zap. No, God gave me time. He, he spoke to me through his spirit and he let me, he, he let me process it in my own time and, and he kept coming and he kept working and, and by the time I was ready, he said, well, here it is. Here's the gift. Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ didn't come with the spirit of hatred. He came with the spirit of servitude and that made all the difference. Humility. So my question to you today is if you're a part of the family and you're supposed to exhibit his traits, how are you doing at love? See, remember, love is a verb. It's not a feeling. So listen, how actively do you love the other members of Eastside Baptist Church? What if they're a little annoying? What if in those moments when you're tired, I mean, what do you do then? Or what if we don't, just don't get along very well? I don't know what to do. Well, let me ask you, how did God treat you? Because you're a sinner and he's holy and there's no greater difference between two people than between you and me and God. But how did he treat you? Did he dismiss you or just write you off? Did he say, I don't have time for them? No. What does this look like at home? How sacrificially and selflessly do you love those at home, those that you should be closest to, those that you should show love the most to. Sometimes we're better at sacrificial love in our church family than we are in our own homes. Dads, how gentle are you with your children? Because that's how God loves us. Remember, the standard of love is God, and it cost him much, much, but he did it with grace. Moms, how patient are you with your household? Children, how servant-minded are you when it comes to help? God is love. We ought to resemble God. So love each other like he loved us, which is seeking the good of somebody else. Are you better at tolerance than love? It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to see someone in their sin and, and have the courage to deal with it. I get it. It's hard. But knowing that a critical spirit will hurt them, are you going to just accept that in your friends? Or are you going to deal with it humbly and full of grace like God did? Do we just put up with this, their, their lifestyle that we know isn't right or, or, or their violent temper or their addiction to something that nobody else knows about? Do we just put up with those things without being willing to take a step to help? Love does more than tolerate. Tolerance leaves people where they are. 
But if you love like God, you'll be willing to go to whatever lengths are necessary for the good of someone else. Not being mean and hateful, not at all. God's love deals with the issue with humility and patience, being firm but kind. It's a great balance. It's easier to be tolerant than show biblical love because you don't have to confront. You don't have to be uncomfortable. You don't have to be in a weird position. It's more convenient just to accept people and where they are. But if we are to love like our Father loves us, we should accept them as brothers and sisters and souls, but love them enough to refuse to allow them to stay where they are. The ultimate example to me is witnessing to others. You know, there's a world out there and there may be somebody in here who's not saved. You've never received Christ as your Savior. Well, today you've heard the gospel and you can be saved. But there's a world out there that have never received Christ as their Savior and they don't have, they're not in good standing with God. And listen, tolerance would say, well, just that's their choice. We accept them for where they are. But love says, no. I accept them for who they are and, and I know their lifestyle, but I love them so much that I'll give up a Saturday to go knock on their door and tell them about Jesus Christ. I'll love them so much that when I walk by them in the grocery store and they check me out, I'm going to give them a tract to Eastside Baptist Church that has the gospel on it because I, don't, I, I want to accept them where they are, but I don't want them to stay there. That's the ultimate example of God's love. And so Eastside Baptist Church, how are we doing at that? It's not, just, it's not love if you just let it be. It's true at our church. It's true at our homes. It's true with strangers who are lost. It's true with our children. Don't just tolerate love. Because love is of God. And if you're born of God and know God, love proves it. Why? Why should I do this? Because God first loved you that way. And you as his child and a recipient of his love have the obligation, privilege, and enabling of God to love others the way he loves you. If you could summarize the difference between tolerance and love, you might say, tolerance leaves you the same, but love will leave you changed. There's no doubt that when Christ came, God's love left us better, didn't it? So how, though, are you? When you come across somebody else, how are you at leaving the people you encounter every day? Do you leave them better? Because that's love. If you leave them the same, it's just tolerance. Here at church, at home, the lost, I wonder if we have a lot of people practicing the ostrich virtue of Christian tolerance. Christian tolerance means they're content to leave others in the same condition they find them. Christian tolerance does not deal with the issues. But Christian love means you look at every encounter as a way to leave someone in a better position than you found them. Love accepts people where they are, but refuses to let them stay there. In every encounter, ask yourself, what can I say or do in this moment to help this person leave better? Not an attitude of egotism. I'm not saying that you have something to teach everybody. I'm saying God's love looks at people that way. It's the attitude of God. The way he loves. Beloved, let us love one another.
Not just accept people for where they are. Accept them where they are, but refuse to let them stay there. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's stand together. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.